Hello there, welcome to Jubes and Curd, the podcast of my show on GB News. My name's Michelle Jubery, and you can catch me live every weekday evening from 6 till 7pm. But worry not, if you miss it, you can catch up here after every show. So let's do it. Welcome to Jubes and Curd. Well, keeping me company until 7 o'clock tonight, my panel, we've got the former Brexit Party MEP Michael Heaver, the academic Dr Lisa McKenzie and the former editor of Labourist Peter Edwards. And you know the drill on Jubes uh, and Co by now. It's not just about us here. It's about you as well at home and all your thoughts. What is on your mind tonight about the stories we're discussing or anything that you think we should be discussing that we've missed? You can email me, gbviews at gbnews.uk or you can tweet me at Michelle Jubes or at gbnews. Don't forget, of course, uh, you can watch us on YouTube. Uh, you might be already. Good evening to you if you are. You can listen to us on the radio. Just search for uh, GB News on DAB. And of course, we are all over social media. So wherever you're watching and listening, good evening to you tonight. You are very welcome. Let's get into our top story, shall we? Uh, the controversial, to put it mildly, I think, um, plans to change the country's asylum and immigration laws. Uh, a number of Conservative MPs are expected to vote against the government tonight. I'm speaking, of course, about the Nationality and Borders Bill. Uh, it's been debated in the House of Commons. This is, of course, after a number of amendments from peers in the Lords. Yesterday, border force officials stopped 213 migrants uh, in the channel and there were reports that earlier today, a tiny baby were among those that were picked up from a small boat. More than 3,000 people have travelled from France to the UK are using this route so far this year. One of the most contentious parts of the Nationality and Borders Bill would see some asylum seekers processed abroad, uh, also known as offshoring. Home Secretary Priti Patel wants to go ahead with offshoring, but former Minister David Davies among those uh, MPs who are opposing the policy. He, by the way, joins Nigel Farage a bit later tonight. Uh, Michael Heaver, your thoughts on all of this? I was alluding to some of the figures earlier on. 30,000 people crossed the channel uh, last year. This time, uh, so far, this year, so far, 3,000, which is three times the number uh, this time last year. It's going up and up. Certainly, no, um, doesn't show any signs at all of stopping or slowing down. How are we going to deal with all of this? Well, you're absolutely right, Michelle. I mean, we've seen the numbers go up for a number of years now. As we know, last year, it was 28,000 people. Some of the forecasters this year could be upwards of 60,000 people. And Pretty Patel, as Home Secretary, we've seen this go up year after year after year. And she has come out and Boris have come out time and time again and said, well, just wait for the Nationality and Borders Bill, what we're talking about here, uh, and that will uh, solve this, that will stop the numbers. Whether that does or not, we'll have to wait and see. But there's absolutely no doubt that there's widespread British public support to crack down on this, to stop this dangerous situation from getting even worse. We look at the Australian example, of course. In the end, if you send out the message, there's no point coming across illegally via this route because you will not be allowed to stay. Ultimately, that is how you solve this. We saw Theresa May when she was Home Secretary say, if you truly want to reform... Uh, human rights in this country, you have to leave the ECHR. It looks like the Home Secretary isn't going anywhere near that at the moment. But look, the fact is, this issue, if Pretty Patel and Boris Johnson don't stop this, at, you know, by the time of the next general election, this could well cost the Conservatives the next election. Because people are looking at this and thinking if economic migrants 
paying gangsters large amounts of money to come across on boats from a safe country in France. If the government are powerless to stop this and we simply see the numbers continue, that is not good enough. And I would actually shame the French, who of course we've given tens of millions of pounds to, we've seen there also the French authorities on the beaches at times, watch these crossings go on. I would have actually shamed the French by revoking French fishing licences for their failure to stop and actually take the boats back to France. Yes, the French would have gone absolutely potty with that. We may finally have had a solution. This has been allowed to go on and escalate and become even more dangerous and it has to stop. Peter Edwards. Britain's Guantanamo Bay. Not my words, the words of a Tory MP who will rebel against the government tonight. People shouldn't be crossing the channel. It puts the lives of men, women and children at risk. We all know Preeti Patel and the government have failed on this. And I really don't like some of the macho rhetoric that's come from the government. This government and other Tory governments since 2010 have had an incredibly hostile tone um, about immigration of all types, whether that's asylum or economic migration through traditional routes. Um, the government are failing on this, but, but let's take the kind of party politics out of it and just recognise that lives of men, women and children are at stake. I was really worried as well to hear my fellow panellists talk about economic migrants. This is about asylum seekers, people fleeing war, dying in the sea. Yeah, hang on, do be clear about what we're talking about here. These, this is people fleeing France. That's ultimately where these people are That's not their country from. of origin, though. I didn't say it was their country of origin. I said that this is where they are. I mean, I use the word fleeing loosely, um, but they are leaving France. But Michelle, Lisa. Wouldn't, wouldn't everybody be fleeing France? I'm not saying anything about France. I like France. <laughs> but, That's uh, a bit harsh. No. I think there's a lot of French people in I France that are quite I, happy there. I love France. So I'm not saying anything about France. But, you know, the Ukraine refugees are coming through Poland. They are, and they will eventually come through Belgium or France to get to the UK. So what are we saying the same about them? You know, so... Am I saying what about that? So, so... And I, I actually agree with David Davis that we should not be having offshoring at all. I, I think we should be much better than that. But what I am saying is, you know, there needs to be routes that are safe mm -hmm. for migrants to come through. Clearly, the, our borders are, and I know we've had this debate on here before, and I've said that our, our borders are safe and strong, because if they wasn't, you wouldn't get all these people coming over on, a, on boats. You know, you don't get on a boat and pay a people smuggler everything that you've got, you know, for no reason at all. So what I'm saying is that the whole system needs to be looked at. I agree with that. Mm. I don't want people on boats. But what I'm also saying is in order to get to the UK, because we are on an island, there is always a country you're going to come through. Mm -hmm. So, you know, the Ukraine refugees are coming through Poland or um, and Belgium to get here. So, the so other migrants from other countries that are fleeing war as well, you know, they are also coming through France. So I think that I think that French argument about you know they're leaving a safe place to get here. I think that argument's now been crushed. See, I don't think it's been crushed. I think it's a very uh, essential argument actually, because for me, if you're gonna if you are in a safe place, then you're not fleeing a war anymore. 
you're then making an economic choice. And I'm not blame, I don't blame them, no, by no, the way. No. Who wouldn't want no. to? Who wouldn't want to sit there and say, I want the best for my life? Yeah. I mean, most yeah. most yeah. people want the best for their life. So that's not, I'm not criticizing a motivation. What I'm saying is we do need to be honest about often what is a motivation. If you're in a safe place, for me personally, the, the sentiment that I'm now fleeing a war, that's been parked for a moment because I've left mm. the war and I'm in somewhere that is safe. If I then want to proceed from there for economic reasons, mm. not saying there's anything wrong with that, who wouldn't want to be economically affluent and uh, have the best opportunities, but that is very different for me personally. Michael? But of course there's a massive difference here because the those that are uh, fleeing Ukraine now and coming and, you know, What's when we've difference? got... A, well, What's well, I'll difference? tell you what the route is. <laughs> the difference is because you have official, legal, sanctioned routes that are safe for everyone, and that should be and the priority. Why? And Instead why? of, at the moment, we're paying millions of pounds per day on hotels for people who just decided to get on a boat, pay some gangsters and come across from France. Are those really the people that that's we should really, be spending millions really, of pounds that's every a, day on? That's well, that's the reality of what's no, happening. No, that's not the reality. That's a Criminals poor, are making that's, huge amounts that's of money not, for this. That's a poor description of clearly, of clearly desperate people who are... You do not take... France is not that bad. They're funding well, criminal gangs. Well, if you are, li if you are living in a, in, a, in a tent in that side of... Uh, in France then that is pretty bad. But do you think it's right, then, that we're paying millions of pounds per day on hotels for people who come across let this me just route, add a which bit could of, lessen how much we can help people coming through the official Let me add a bit of insight into this of pounds, by the way. So the UK is currently spending, uh, as of February anyway, £4.7 million pounds per day, £4.7 million pounds per day, on uh, hotel accommodation. Now, what this covers is £1.2 million uh, pounds a day on, remember the Afghan situation, lots of refugees from there, so this is, a, the figures are apparently 1.2 million a day is to accommodate Afghan refugees in hotels, and another 3.5 million a day is spent on asylum seekers in hotels. Well, could I answer that point? Because I think, you may. left or right, we'd all say, um, we'd all question whether that's value for money for taxpayers. But the point is... It's, it's I, a, wouldn't, it's, I wouldn't it's a, question it. To me, it's absolutely... Yeah, it's, it's I agree with that. I, I mean, this is where I agree. Point. It's a broken <laughs> system, right? We'd rather pay much less, but we'd rather have a better, more humane, more compassionate system for victims of torture, people fleeing war-torn countries, victims of rape. The system do you think there's anyone? Broken. Do you think people are abusing the system, Peter? I think, I think... I don't know enough about it. I think there's clearly scope for it to be abused. That's undeniable. But if you had to hazard a guess, I mean, do you think that there are people that would be, that perhaps are motivated to come to the UK? So I'm always interested in pull factors. So do you think, because one of the things Priti Patel will say, uh, Peter, in my mind, rightly so, is that you've got to reduce the pull factors to the UK. So when I think of, I don't know, what people get, like a, an Anna in Hull, for example, I can think of a hotel that is quite a nice hotel that most people in Hull wouldn't be able to afford to stay in for a, a prolonged period of time. But that has now been uh, turned over for use to uh, asylum seekers, uh, economic migrants, refugees, whatever we want to call these people. Um, you know, and it's costing us a fortune, as we just said, they're nearly £5 million a day in this country. Michelle, without being too get... flippant, asylum well, seekers haven't read a travel brochure about East Yorkshire. Um, but you see, but this is, I think that's a silly point to make, because you're telling me that a lot of people that get on these dinghies in France, they don't know that actually, if you can make it to the UK, you'll be put up in a hotel, you'll get about 40 quid a week or whatever it is, you'll get looked after, you'll get fed, you'll get clothed. You're telling me people don't know that. Could you live on 40 quid a week? 
That's if I was put up in a hotel, if I was being fed, if I was if I wasn't actually having much expenditure, then I absolutely could probably live on a reduced income. But that's not the point I'm making. The point I'm making, I'm asking you about pull factors to the UK. Do you think that we need to reduce them? I think there are pull factors. I'm far I think there's an economic argument to be had, but I'm far more worried about men, women and children dying in the sea. But if someone, I don't want anyone to die in the sea, by the way, but making a choice to get in a dinghy and cross to the UK is indeed a choice, isn't it? We all make choices mm. and we make, may not make good ones if... when we're desperate. But I don't think, and I'm not suggesting you are, but I don't think we should condemn them for making that choice. I, I think there's like a wider point about the way that our system treats many different people. And, you know, we've talked about those hotels. I, I stay in those hotels a lot because I live in Nottingham and I work in Luton. So I'm staying in hotels where there are lots of, um, I don't know, asylum seekers living in them. And it is a shame that that's what we do. That's what we do with them. You know, it's a shame that that's what's happened. We don't have a good system. And this is where I probably agree with everyone, is that the system that we have is not working. And so rather than, um, you know, having debates about offshoring and should we Build. I mean, David Davis today, I heard him uh, on another programme and he was talking about how much it would actually cost to offshore people. And he said it would be cheaper um, to put them up in the Ritz and send the kids to Eton than it would be to send them offshore. It would be 4,000 yeah. miles away to it Ascension would... Island because so many other countries have already turned down Britain's request. So, they, so, he's, so, so all of this is a bad system. And I don't know why... In Parliament tonight, they can just have a debate and say the whole system is bad. Well, I, so, think, I don't think anyone would suggest no. the system's good. No, no. Or, or where? So why are they tinkering at but, the edges all the time, and, and instead of actually really having, you know, really having a look at the system? But you know, as well, Michael, I, I think there's almost, to me, you almost need two systems. You need a. If I think about my kind of my business head, I would say you need a business as usual system. So you've got an asylum seeker a system that kind of operates and is consistent all the rest of it. Then you almost need to have an emergency system, uh, because to me, what's happening in the channel right now, and we've just described these numbers to you, um, it is out of control. I would actually say it's a crisis. If you've got like we had thirty thousand people, if you've got. Um, it can be up to a thousand actually a day crossing the channel. That to me is an emergency situation and you must have uh, processes, laws, etc., that allow you to deal with that. I personally, and I know this is very controversial and I know a lot of viewers will completely wholeheartedly disagree with me as indeed you're right. I would have a turn back system and I would make it very clear to anyone and everyone, if you choose to make a channel crossing, there will be no uh, consideration of an asylum process. So if you enter the country by the route of the channel, you will not even be considered for asylum. And then that leads to your point, Lisa, that in order to do that properly, you must then have an effective system elsewhere so that people can then claim yeah. asylum using a different route. Yeah. But Michael. No, look, Michelle, I, I agree with you there. And I would think, you know, everyone here on this panel, I think, agrees that we don't want to see this continue. The fact is, this hasn't just continued, it's got worse, a lot worse, year after year after year, as I said. It was 28,000 last year. This year, the forecast is 60,000 plus. So it's all right to criticise Priti Patel's Nationality and Borders Bill, but what is the alternative that people are putting forward? My argument is you need strong deterrence, a clear message. If you use this route, you won't be allowed to stay. So there's absolutely no point paying gangsters to bring you across in the first place. 
But you know what I um, found out, Peter? Answering the question, is it legal or illegal to get on a boat in France and come over to the country, uh, to the UK, sorry, it's quite hard actually to find definitive answers as to whether or not that's legal or illegal because for a long period of time it was described as illegal. You couldn't just get on a boat and randomly come to the UK and try and uh, claim asylum, etc. And actually, it's not illegal. It is legal to do that. And I think this is uh, one of the problems. And again, I always say to my viewers, it's a very, it's a jolly good uh, job that I'm not in charge of the country. But if I was in charge of the country, one of the things that I would do is make that crossing illegal and say, actually, you can't do that. You simply just can't do that. I would make it uh, almost impossible for people to be able to cross the channel and claim asylum in this country. How would you do that when France is in the EU and the journey involves French waters? Well, what I would do, as I've just explained, and I know it's controversial, and I know that many of you will be watching this, shouting at your TV and thinking I'm an awful person. I understand that and you're entitled to your view. I would have turn back. So no, I no, wouldn't actually have question. people. How could you make it illegal when Britain couldn't act unilaterally to make well, that I'd journey. Well, I'd police my water, that's what I'm saying. I'd police my borders. So I'd actually turn back. So if I got sight or wind, actually of a dinghy, coming up to my border, I'd be doing turn back the way that Australia was doing turn back in what they call Operation Sovereign Border. I wouldn't let people cross the channel, cross, cross into the border. And I would make absolutely damn sure, I'd say, if anyone actually managed to evade, uh, well, it wouldn't be me, but my system, and you did make it to the shores, I would just say there is no opportunity for you to claim asylum if your route of entry to this country was via the channel. And would you do that unilaterally or in cooperation with France? Well, France, to be fair to France, and I'm going to be completely unfair to France, <laughs> I think that they are completely useless. We've sent tens of millions of pounds to these people, French people, French government, to stop them actually or to request them that they stop people doing this, it's made hardly any difference whatsoever. So I would just take responsibility for my own border. But in your nautical border post, are you doing that unilaterally or are you cooperating with France? Um, well, I would just, I think I would ignore the French in lots of ways. I would be saying to France, ultimately it's in the French, it's in the French interest to let these people leave their shores because then it's no longer a problem for the French. So I would take responsibility for my border. I'm repeating myself because I think I'm being inc incredibly clear in what I'm saying. I'm challenging you because it sounds completely impractical. But I don't think it is impractical. It's been demonstrated to work in Australia. They have Operation Sovereign Border. One of the component parts of this is Operation Turnback. Another part of this is them saying that actually if you do enter Australia via uh, that water, you won't be granted asylum full stop. I'm sorry, so I, think I think that's think a very I've poor been... precedent because Australia well, is a I different country. And... So what? I think, it's a, I think it's a good precedent. It's mine. You're very much... You tell me at home, what do you think? Do you agree with me or do you think I'm talking nonsense? Peter thinks I'm talking nonsense, don't you, Peter? I are just said that... I was challenging your proposal <laughs> you, rather than nonsense. Are you pleased that I'm not in charge of the immigration policy in this country? Well, what you, would you, you stood what for Parliament, you do? so you might be. What would you do, by the way? Well, I, I do think it is incredibly tough, and I, I'm completely happy to admit that there, there isn't a, a, a simple solution. I would, I think you've got to dump the macho rhetoric that the government have used, and I do think I completely accept Brexit. I don't want to have another referendum, but I think we have to work with Europe uh, to pick up on one of the points you said, which was to limit the pull factors and then force a system that um, treats asylum seekers legally, but also with um, compassion. 
Right, well, there you go. I'm going to take a quick break. When we do, I'm going to come back with some of your thoughts. I can see, I can tell you, my inbox is lighting up. And I have to say, I think it's very easy to say what we don't want or what isn't right. But I think obviously, as is proven by the fact that this is increasing, the number of people crossing the channel is increasing. It's obviously not an easy problem to solve. Nonetheless, what are your thoughts? What would you be doing? And what do you think the government should be doing right now uh, to help stop this problem? Uh, gonna take a quick break and I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Hello, welcome back to Jubes and Kurt with me, Michelle Juby. I've just been having a fascinating uh, conversation with one of my panelists just then, Lisa. Um, in fact, actually, if you just tuned in, you'll be thinking, I don't even know who Lisa is. Who is, uh, who is Lisa? Well, just a quick reminder. Um, for you then as to who my panel is. We've got Peter Edwards, who is the former editor of The Labour List. We've got Lisa McKenzie. You're an ethnographer. Yeah. I ask you this every I'm a, single I'm a sociologist. Time What's an ethnographer? <laughs> it's somebody that does research that's embedded in the community. Right. You're embedded into the community yes. researching people. Yes, I am. Interesting. Um, and Michael Heaver, former Brexit Party MEP. Uh, we all should know what an ethnographer is, by the way, because you're on here frequently, and I always ask you to explain yes. it. Yes, yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, It's a research method that everybody likes to hear the stories of the ethnographer. Well, but... next time you're on, what I'm going to do is I'm going to introduce you as an ethnographer, and then I'm going to ask the viewers uh, who can remember what an ethnographer is, and whoever gets it right and emails him first will win a prize. Uh, it won't be a good prize, but it'll be a prize nonetheless. Just or just glory, actually. Just get the glory of knowing that you're right. Anyway, we were just talking about uh, nationality and borders bill uh, just before the break. What do we do about the situation in the channel? Lots of you agree. Um, there's a, there is almost two situations, isn't there? There's the ongoing situation of asylum in this country and for that absolutely you should have your roots your abilities your systems your processes for people to do that i don't think anyone is against uh, people claiming asylum in the uk but then there's also the emergency situation i would call it a bit of a crisis actually of the people the numbers of people that are crossing the channel and what do we do with that um diane uh, sorry karen says you know, if anyone comes in illegally, they shouldn't be able to stay. One of the problems is there, Karen, I think it's been a bit confused over the over the years whether or not crossing the channel is uh, legal. There was a, a court of appeal, actually, in December that ruled that it wasn't. Uh, Phil says, Tubes, how many people uh, can the UK support financially and medically before someone with a backbone says enough is enough? Uh, David says, it sometimes feels like asylum um, seekers get treated better than our own people. Nigel says, we are a soft touch. Um, I want to hear from you, actually. Do you? Is there anyone out there that thinks that the UK isn't a soft touch? Uh, get in touch and let me know. Let's move on, though, shall we, to another topic. Um, the police's use of facial recognition technology. What do you think to all of this? The College of Policing today has published new guidelines for forces in England and Wales. It says the technology will help catch dangerous offenders. However, obviously, it's been criticised by civil liberty groups. Big Brother Watch has called it Orwellian um, and described it as an atrocious policy. A previous trial, by the way, was ruled to have breached privacy rights as it also broke equalities law, but South Wales Police started using the technology again last week. So what do we think? Facial recognition technology. I'll start with you on this, Peter. Are you in favour of this? Is it a good thing or not? 
I'm not in favour at the moment, and you can absolutely see it going wrong. And when you read the whole story, it's not just about suspects. Remember, there's a difference between a suspect and someone convicted. It's, but it's not just about suspects. It's about victims and witnesses. So when you... Um, and I, I generally have a lot of re respect for the police, and uh, although the Met have made huge mistakes that contribute to a crisis in public trust, uh, I do think a lot of rank-and-file police are doing a very, a very tough job in exposing themselves to danger. But this story, this uh, suggestion about facial recognition, it kind of merges together um, state power, personal data, and as always with the state, a risk of a massive IT failure. So I am very concerned. Yeah, there is. You hit on something interesting there when you say about the state and IT failures. I've just highlighted another uh, failed IT project, not facial recognition, I have to say, um, but an IT project in Manchester Police, Great Manchester Police, that's gone wrong. Oh, sorry, should I say not fit for purpose? There is a real flaw in public sector track records when it comes to IT systems. They don't seem to be very good at it, but facial recognition is a principle, Lisa. Are you anti this? or I'm completely anti it. I, I think, you know... Um... And you said you've got great respect for the police. I don't have a lot of respect for the police. I've, um, you know, I've, I've been on the wrong side of, of, uh, of, of their uh, values, we should say, sometimes. I've, I used to do a lot of protests. What does that mean? Well, I used to do a lot of protests. I used to go on a lot of protests. And, um, you know, I used to get picked out of the crowd as, you know, a person of interest. Have you got a criminal record for your protesting? Uh, no, I haven't, because every time they arrested me, and this is this is the really crazy thing, every time they arrested me, they was really arresting me to sort of prove a point to the rest of the crowd. And when it actually got to court, there was never any evidence that I'd done anything. You're easy to spot that with your hair. <laughs> well, yeah. They'd be like, how many, how many troublemakers can we, we catch with fluorescent yellow hair? You'd, be, you'd stand so, out. So being on that other side where, you know, I have been picked out of a crowd because of, you know, whatever reason, um, I mean, once I got done for, I got actually, I got done for joint enterprise, um, which they normally only um, try and try you with if it's something to do with um, a sort of a murder. Yeah, joint, or... joint enterprise, just for the people that are not familiar, just correct me if I'm wrong, by the way. It's just like, for example, if someone gets stabbed, yeah. it's not just the stabber that can get done. Yes, it's, it's everybody it's there. All yeah. of you but they use, But they usually use it for sort of organised crime. But on this occasion, they arrested me because I allegedly put a sticker on a window. And in the end, they realised that I hadn't done this because I looked at the CCTV. And so instead of letting, the, the, letting it go, what they did is they did joint enterprise, that I was near someone who put a sticker on a window. Do you know what the moral of the story is? Don't hang around <laughs> with people that are sticking stickers on other people's window. That is the moral of that story. So Michael, anyway, Michael Heaver, facial recognition, are you up for it or not? Well, look, there's always a balance, isn't it? At the end of the day, people want, you know, the police do have a very hard job. People want them to solve crimes as much as possible. The technology is always evolving, so the possibility to bring things in like this is always going to be there. But absolutely, I think it's right to be, you know, to, to, to question what this could mean. You know, what would happen, for instance, if the system was hacked? And some of this data got into the hands of criminals. What if you had the, uh, you know, the, the case of people leaving data around on trains and things like that? So you do have to look at the fail-safe mechanisms that you have with this. Ultimately, on balance, though, I think when it comes to the British public, they will go along with a lot of this stuff if it actually provably helps uh, increase conviction rates and solve more crimes. Yeah, I've got to say, 
right? As a principal, I mean, let's be honest about this. There's a lot of wrong uns roaming the streets, right? That should be caught, should probably be in prison, and they are not. So anything, quite frankly, uh, that helps catch these people, I am in favour of. However, uh, when you start looking at some of the information here, four out of five people identified in the Metropolitan Police's facial recognition uh, te technology as possible subjects, uh, suspects are innocent. It goes on to say the system is 81% inaccurate. Uh, so I've got to say, I don't get huge levels of confidence there from the old uh, technology, but... You know, I don't know, if someone's committed a crime against you and this software helps track them down, Peter, you'd be grateful for that, wouldn't you? Well, I think that's a very emotive question about something that's ultimately got to be evidence-led. What? What does that mean? If someone commits a crime against you, you would be grateful that the perpetrator gets caught whatever the not technology used. Not if someone, uh, not if, say, I suffered a minor crime, like assault, and then someone was wrongly convicted for a much more serious crime, we know that in you know British history and like in many nations there have been gross miscarriages of justice over the last 50 years. I, I don't need to recite them all now. So uh, no, you, I think uh, that wouldn't give me comfort simply having one person convicted because they'd you know bashed me on the nose in a pub. Well, I'm an anomaly then because if someone attacks me or does anything to one of my loved ones, I absolutely want them caught by any means necessary, quite frankly. Yeah, by any means necessary? Yeah, by any means necessary. If they've oh. done something wrong, if they've assaulted me or a loved one, quite frankly, yeah, I do. I want them caught and I want them punished. But by any means we, necessary, we, we all yeah. Want criminals punished, but by any means necessary? Yeah. I think what we've got yes. to do is, is... I don't know why that's <laughs> controversial. Don't, yes. I think we've got to look at what we've already got. I mean, we've got... We are, we are the most sort of cameraed up CCTV country in the world. So, you know, how much of this security do we need? But on balance, if you looked at CCTV and said to people, do you think it's been a good or a bad thing, obviously, invasion of privacy versus solving cases and giving irrefutable proof and convicting some very dangerous people. I think on the whole, people would be in favour of CCTV, yes. so perhaps yeah. the same yeah. would happen. I mean, happen, I've yeah. always been very sort of... When it comes to security, the state securitising um, everything, I've always been very suspicious. But even I would admit that CCTV has been helpful. Even I would admit that. But facial recognition is going a bit further because it's it, facial recognition, what they are looking for mostly is people who may commit a crime. You know, it's a bit minority report. Well, Patrick's emailed in with a little quotation. He who would give up li liberties for little safety deserves neither safeties or liberties. There you go. Bit of food for thought there. Uh, right, I want to talk about tolls as well, but what should I do? Should I talk about tolls now or should I go to a break or... Yeah, let's talk about tolls, shall we? Uh, Lisa said something very interesting to me, by the way, when we was in the break, because uh, Lisa said to me, when it comes to murdering stories, she says her words, it makes her go right wing. <laughs> a murdering stories. And I asked her, how would she describe herself normally? She said, left wing. No, so I said I'm an anarchist. Oh, an anarchist, <laughs> right. Well, let's get into this story that suddenly brings out all the right wing in Lisa then, shall we? Because more than a fifth of cars sold in January were electric vehicles. Uh, and with new petrol and diesel cars set to be banned from 2030, the government's desire to see us go all electric is a major part, of course, of their, uh, some would say, bonkers net zero agenda. Of course, though, the knock-on effect, or one of them, of this policy will be a reduction in the amount of money raised by fuel duty. So if we've got a reduction in fuel duty, of course, we're going to start thinking about, well, what we're going to do to raise that cash then? One suggestion is a network of toll roads. Uh, Lisa, let's get to the nuts and bolts of this. Are you in favour of toll roads? No, I'm not in favour of toll roads. I think, you know, 
If any of you, if any of us, all of those who live outside of the M25, which is the rest of the country, mm -hmm. we do not have transport, public transport systems that are joined up. We don't have bus. So, some of our communities have a bus every day, one day, one bus a day. Other parts of our communities, I mean, Sheffield, for example, I've heard that buses just turn up. There's not even a, you know, they, they don't turn up on time. You can't plan anything out of it. So when we've got a system that is not working, mm -hmm. then you have to get into a car. And I am really sorry that people, you know, the Green Brigade get very upset about that, but I... What's right-wing about this, by the way? Because I get really upset, you know, I turn into a bit of a, you know, the local council's not taking my money from toll roads or from parking tickets or from a million other things that they hammer the motorists with. And I think it's always really easy to hammer the motorists that they're doing something really bad by getting in their car. But when you live in areas where there is no other way to get to work or to do or to do the simple things in life you have got no choice but to get into your car and you know and then also with the electric cars how many of us can really afford those at the moment so i think it's going to you know cars should if we're keeping the transport system that we have then you have to accept that cars are important and keep hammering people driving their cars is you know I've, I've known people who have got a parking ticket and it's basically the last thing and they've gone under, you know, with their money, they've, they, you know, the debt of a parking ticket that they couldn't pay. You know, they've literally gone under at that point. You know, they couldn't pay the parking ticket and then this extra money gets put on it and then bailiffs turn up. And I've known people who've really um, been in bad situations because of things like parking tickets. Do you know, don't even get me started. <laughs> I've got a story, right, about something that happened to me uh, at 6 30 uh, in the morning because of a parking ticket but I'll hold my thoughts and ask Michael Heaver before I start going on a little rant about parking. Toll roads, are you in favour of them or what? Well this is all, you're sort of seeing the, the net zero agenda, you're now seeing it in terms of energy bills and in terms of measures like this. You'll see, I think people are starting to realise where this is all heading and of course the, I think I looked at some of the reaction online to this suggestion today. People are feeling quite hammered already in terms of taxation. The idea that a Conservative government, that people would assume are actually going to bring down, down taxes, are going to sort of have a tax raid on roads nationwide. I know, of course, things are changing with the technology, the electric cars, etc. But the idea that you're going to have these toll roads hitting people uh, on the roads from a Conservative government, I think is something that is going to be deeply unpopular for the government. Mm. Peter? Well, this is a high-tax government and they just can't admit it. This is another Tory tax writers. And you can really, you know, imagine the people that write the Labour Party manifesto scribbling away furiously. There's a cost of living crisis. We've got the national insurance rise um, for health just around the corner. And that's actually in the short term just filling a hole in the NHS budget rather than going on uh, social care. Now, now they want to tax motorists as well. Uh, I suspect there'll be a massive rebellion over this and it will be watered down, but it's really a sign of how the Tories have struggled to get a grip on um, public finances. Yeah, and I do think you, you raise an interesting point there about there is a little bit of topsy-turviness going on in politics at the moment, isn't there? I think the Tories were supposed to be uh, all about the low taxes. Some would put a massive question mark on that at the moment. And we talk, by the way, about we need to raise all this extra revenue here, there and everywhere. But one of the things that gets me, everybody, is how come we seem to be, um, I was going to use the saying then, but I don't think I can say the particular saying, which means that we're skint uh, at tea time. But you might know the saying that I mean. But apparently we're skint uh, and in need of raising all these taxes and all the rest of it when it suits us. 
And then on the flip side of that, we seem to uh, find money pretty much anywhere and everywhere when it comes to various other things, uh, like five million pounds a day almost on hotels. Anyway, I'm uh, gonna take a quick break. When we come back, I wanna talk about a few different things actually. Uh, Prince Andrew, and I wanna talk about mental health as well. So don't go away and I'll see you in a couple of minutes. Hello there, welcome back to Jubes & Co with me, Michelle Jubry. Just a brief reminder as to my panel tonight, in case you've just joined us, we've got Michael Heaver, who's the former Brexit Party MEP, Dr Lisa McKenzie, ethnographer and academic, and Peter Edwards, who's the former editor of The Labour List. Now, uh, tomorrow, actually, marks the second anniversary since Britain lost its collective mind. Uh, what am I talking about? Uh, I'm talking about, of course, going into the lockdown for COVID. Why do I say, well, we lost our mind? Because of all of the, I accept, unintended consequences, but consequences nonetheless. Mental health is a big one that we talk about. Uh, last year, you know, NHS received 4.3 million referrals um, for mental health services there. And a new survey has found that one in three Brits have felt down and depressed since March 2020. Uh, the number of people being prescribed anti-anxiety drugs has gone through the roof. Hardly unsurprising, is it? Uh, Michael Heaver, hmm. my, mental health, I mean, it's always been a thing. Um, you know, we've all got a brain and if you've got a brain, you have the opportunity for it to go wrong, let's face it. But lockdowns didn't help with this. Um, what are we going to do, though, about the situation that we're in now? I must say, Michelle, I saw some statistics the other day about the number of people now prescribed antidepressants in this country and obviously anti-anxiety drugs we're talking about here. The numbers are absolutely mind-blowing when you consider, you know, millions and millions every year. And this is, you know... This isn't healthy. It sounds obvious, but in terms of the way our society's going, we can't go on like this. I've seen people in such a state that we simply hand them anti-anxiety, anti-depressant drugs uh, at this current rate. And I think what it shows you is in many ways, you know, obviously lockdown, for anyone that did have you know, problems with their mental health, that obviously exacerbated it massively. But I do think more generally, we need to look about what we're teaching our kids growing up in terms of what they're eating, how they're socialising. Is it really healthy to be inside on the computer all the time? Is it really healthy to be glued to social media, to, to, to Instagram, uh, to looking at photos and, and, and all the rest of it? I am a big, uh, you know, really do support people going and exercising and teaching that to young people growing up. And I know it's not going to cure this overnight, but I'll repeat the point. You know, if you go and look at the statistics on the number of people now in this country that are getting prescribe these drugs. It simply is not sustainable. We cannot continue to see this go up every year. Mm-hmm. Agreed, Lisa? I mean, this is this is just what we know, because it's a t I think this is the tip of the iceberg, because this is, over the last two years, GPs, all they have done is issue prescriptions. That is it. Mm. They haven't seen people. They've not seen people face-to-face. -face. There's been lots and lots of prescri prescriptions issued. But on top of that, you've also got people that are, by, and I know, many people in my circle that are buying um, various anxiety medications over the internet. Yeah, I know people do yeah. that, actually. Sleeping tablets, um, tramadol, uh, diazepam, you know. All right, God, <laughs> she's got like a list as long of her, well, as her well, Those are seriously strong yeah, drugs, aren't they? Yeah, they are. This is what I'm saying, is they're seriously strong drugs mm. and you can buy them online. Um, and people and people are buying them online in order to feel normal or feel well. So we've got, you know, I think 
this is this is a very serious problem. Yeah, and I mean, what I find interesting there is you say that people are buying these uh, things to feel normal. I'm going to pick mm. up on your use of the word normal because, Peter, actually, um, it is quite normal to have fluctuation in moods. And it is also, can be, quite normal to feel anxious about mm. things. And I worry whether as a society, Ian's just written and said, Jubes, I'm concerned. I don't think I've got a mental health problem, but it seems fashionable to have one. And I worry, I mean, I'm not undermining genuine mental health issues. I've suffered myself and I've been very publicly um, open about that. But are we in danger of kind of medicating emotions and emotions are normal? Well, that's a risk we've got to be alive to. I mean, I think you've been very courageous in talking about your mental health issues publicly. And I think talking about it generally is a huge positive. What this particular story doesn't tell us is whether there are greater levels of anxiety or greater diagnosis of existing levels of anxiety. I suspect it's a bit of both, and it's obvious that, um, you know, the greatest public health crisis for a thousand years is, is going to fuel public anxiety. So I think this story doesn't tell us everything, but I think where there's greater public understanding, a greater willingness to be open about it, and, yeah, perhaps uh, a vigilance that um, there's nothing wrong with taking tablets, but being on tablets long-term poses certain dangers, I, I think that's a slightly better place to end up. Nigel says, Michelle, if someone wants to ease their anxiety problems, they should stop watching the telly. Um, he says, discussion programmes like yours just fuel anxiety. I've got to say, Nigel, I'm not sure that I personally fuel anxiety, but I do think you hit on an interesting point because actually, I think what goes on in the world at the moment, a lot of it is quite depressing. It's quite downbeat. It's not nice, is it? We've just gone from a huge pandemic where pretty much everyone was told that they might die. If not, you might kill someone else. And then we've lurched from that into a cost of living crisis. We've lurched from that into a war. So let's face it, there's not a lot of upbeat um, information and things going on at the moment. But uh, yeah, don't switch tubes and co-op. We always try and make you feel better on this show, if nothing else. Uh, let's move on and talk about Prince Andrew, shall we? He's going to attend Prince Philip's memorial service next week. Um, and then he's expected to leave public life permanently. Um, this service, of course, is going to be at Westminster Abbey. It's going to be his first high-profile public appearance since he settled a sexual assault course brought against him by Ju uh, Virginia Dufresne. Let's cut to the nuts and bolts of this one. Uh, Peter, a lot of people are saying he shouldn't be out in public. Really? What do you think to that? Well, I generally trust the Queen's judgment. I think she's got this right. I, I don't doubt the decision has come uh, from the top. Of course, at a time like this, our thoughts should be with uh, Virginia Jeffrey and the victims of Jeffrey Epstein. Prince Andrew's denied a lot of things, but obviously he's been involved in the settlement. But the idea that he essentially goes to a memorial service with his family members and then retires from public life I think is perhaps a reasonable place to end up because you want to take into account the, the feelings of all, all the royal family as well as the very unpleasant allegations against Prince Andrew. Mm, this is his dad after all, Lisa. Yeah, I think, I mean, I think after Prince Philip's memorial service, I think they should all retire from public life. Do you? <laughs> yes, I do, all of them. I think... They, Why? They, uh, because I don't, because I don't, you're an anarchist doing that. <laughs> there you go. But also, I don't know. I don't know what the point of them is. That's why. I, that you know, if if someone could give me a good argument, what is the point of Michael Heaver? Can you give Lisa a good? <laughs> well, argument? absolutely. I mean, I, I am a bit biased on this. I'm from Cambridge, but the, you know, the Duke and Duchess of Cambridge, the Cambridges. I mean, what fantastic ambassadors and role models they are 
for this country, projecting what this country is all about Why? right across what have the world. They done? Well, I think what they do, <laughs> they, 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 their life is about public service, isn't it? But, and, yeah, but what is it that they do? Well, they go around the world and they <laughs> Well, no, 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 that, no, no <laughs> come on. The royal, the royal family and the Queen, they do so much. Listen, uh, listen, I'm, I am a Republican, I, I think, uh, you know, and the Queen, I accept people love her. I don't particularly love her, but I accept people do. But, you know, she's coming to the end of her life and at the end of her reign, and I am not sure what the point of the rest of them are. Do we do... I mean, let's be honest, everybody on this panel, do, are you all looking forward to King Charles? Lisa, <laughs> if it's a choice between the Queen or President Boris Johnson, who do you pick? What does that, why would it have to be President jo Boris Johnson? It could be President anybody. I mean, you know, we don't... It doesn't have to be President Boris Johnson. I mean, that, that's always a simple argument that... that gets thrown out. Whoever is unpopular at the moment, you know... Who, who, no, it's not about unpopularity. Who would be the head of state if it's not the king or queen? Um, well, well, yeah, we would have... We'd probably have a president, yeah. Yeah. But would... That'd be Boris, wouldn't it? I no, think, it uh, wouldn't be Boris. An, anarchi an anarchist... Because even a... an anarchist needs a thought-through plan for abolishing the monarchy. Well, I only thought... I've only thought as far as the abolishing them. I mean, I'm not really... And again, because I'm an anarchist, I don't really agree... I don't want any president or prime minister. An anarchist or... <laughs> still needs a plan, I think. Yeah, well, we have got plans. I just can't say them today. Well, yeah. there you go. What do you reckon? Do you think uh, Lisa wants to do away with all the royals? Um, do you agree with that? Goodness me. Let me know your thoughts on that. You've all been emailing in. Uh, lots of you are still talking about the first topic, by the way, about immigration and what we should do uh, with the channel crossings. Uh, Michael has emailed in to say it's interesting uh, to see what is considered a mental health issue these days. Um, I think the boundaries seem to be expanding, is his point there. Carol says it's been too easy for doctors to just issue medication uh, prescriptions instead of seeing patients. I've got to say, I agree with you. Uh, on that one. Um, you stop depression by telling your children to toughen up and life's not fair, etc., etc. That's what Ian says. There you go. Anyway, that's all we've got time for for tonight. Thank you very much to my panel, Michael, Lisa and Peter. And of course, thank you uh, at home very much for your company. Have yourself a great evening and I'll see you tomorrow. Thanks for listening to Jubes and Co, the podcast. Don't forget to subscribe so you will never miss an episode. And if you've enjoyed it, leave us a nice comment. I'll see you next time. <laughs>